We have a uh, guest speaker this morning. Pastor Seth Trimmer is the lead pastor of Grace City in Corvallis, which is where we came from. If you didn't know, we're part of a whole family of churches. Um, actually, we're, we're part of like this global family of churches called Every Nation and Grace City in Portland, Corvallis, and Eugene. We're all part of this family of churches. And Seth has been serving as the pastor of Grace City in Corvallis for a while. I have the great pleasure of uh, serving on staff there for one year before they booted us, I mean, sent us out <laughs> to plant this church here um, not, not that long ago. Um, but Seth is a gift. Um, not only is he a great communicator, um, I think he's actually an even better friend. He really loves people well. I feel cared for um, having Seth in my life. Um, so I appreciate you a lot. And... Um, can we give him a, a big hand as we welcome him to teach this morning? Thanks, Simon. Appreciate you flitting. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Honestly, I wish that I could uh, be here with you guys more often. I do have this regular gig on Sunday mornings that keeps me relatively busy down south. Um, but you guys, I think about often. Uh, I, uh, I, still, I still quite vividly remember uh, the times with uh, Pastor Simon when we uh, first started the daydreaming process about what planning a church would mean and where it would be and what it could look like, and that was all quite interesting. And we invited Simon up to, uh, up to Oregon. At that time, it was just kind of to hang out, and Simon was on a, almost like on a mini little sabbatical, just come back from uh, the UK and figuring out where on maybe the West Coast he wanted to land. And uh, I think it was even summertime, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in Oregon, which is like, this is like Garden of Eden territory, correct? Like this is like our treasure that rains 17 months a year. But then for those 17 minutes, we get this brief, amazing glory of God moment called summer. And uh, so Simon was coming up and I think, just come, just be with us. We'll feed you some good food and uh, show you the most beautiful place in the world. And then, uh, and then we'll have at it. And, and it, that first conversation with Simon in Oregon, uh, when they had landed in Portland, they just knew this was the place. This was the place God had. And um, I think it was Shirley that coined it, that this is this, it's, it felt like home. It felt like London, just on weed. It just felt like that. You know, so, okay, great. Uh, yeah, so we, it was really an uh, amazing uh, journey to have the Bardonis uh, planted. And they lived just, uh, just around the corner from us, not too far from us, which is also super fun, in Corvallis for a year. Uh, but it was just apparent, like, uh, yeah, y'all, y'all are meant for Portland, and we're excited to have you guys up here. And super fun for me also, uh, being obviously a pastor in Corvallis, going to see so many of your faces come from at one point uh, from down to Corvallis and moving up here and being a part of this community here and having that connection as well. Uh, I'll also just let you know that uh, I came up this morning with my wife, uh, Hannah, which uh, typically I would actually worship alongside, but she found a baby. And so that's just, just, you know, some people just get distracted easily, squirrel, my wife, just baby radar. So she found Felicity, and that was it. That was all she wrote about that. I am chopped liver officially. Um, and also, just to let you guys know um, that what you guys are doing up here, before I jump into the Word, I really believe that the Lord has uh, spoken a message that he, he, wants, uh, he wants me to deliver here this morning. Um, but I want you guys to know that where this is coming from, um, I was actually just this past week with some other Every Nation leaders. Um, uh, from around uh, the continent, actually, from Canada and the U.S. And it, I rarely go in a single environment in our Every Nation Global family where people don't ask about you. 
And I don't know, it's just because they watch the news and all they ever see is crazy stuff happening in Portland, you know? So like, how is our church in Portland? You know what I mean? It's like, they must be right up against the gates of hell. You know what I mean? They have a condo, like on the third floor, overlooking <laughs> the gates of hell. Uh, but uh, no, people ask all the time. A, because anyone that's met Simon uh, for like 10 minutes loves him. Uh, and B, because I, I really do believe there's something unique and special, not just about this city, uh, but especially the church that you are here. So not only do you have people that deeply care about you, but you have people that are praying for you often. And so I hope you're encouraged by that, uh, how much I believe that uh, God cares about this community, how much he's obviously been providing for this community along, along this road. But I think your best days are ahead. I really do. I think God is building something really special here. Um, and the lives uh, that are intermingling and interrelating and, and ecclesias and here on Sundays, I think that's a really amazing thing. So uh, all that to be said, I hope that I do get to be up here uh, a bit more often than I have been and get to interact with you guys. But this morning, what I'd like to do is share from you a word from the book of Revelation. Because why not? Because the last couple of years have been crazy enough, you might as well go into Revelation for a little bit. So I feel like we're just going to uh, indulge ourselves this morning and jump into the very end of Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to start. So if you got a Bible, I would encourage you to open that up. If you've never been to the book of Revelation before, just turn all the way to the back to the book of Maps and turn left just a few pages and you'll be there. Uh, it is at the very end of your Bible, the final book. And one of the more stranger things about me is how much I love the book of Revelation. Now, I maybe don't love it for some of the reasons that others might assume that I would. I'm not a big fan of Christian fiction. Uh, our Christian science fiction, which is what I refer to the popularized books that have been based on the book of Revelation. Um, but the more that I've come to know and to, and to study and to meditate on the scriptures of Revelation, I realize that amidst so much of the metaphorical imagery that at times can be quite terrifying, um, and amidst all the language of judgment that at times can be quite uh, uh, awakening um, and troubling, that at the heart of Revelation, it's a letter from a pastor to his people who are going through incredible turmoil. And if there's nothing else that you would ever get from reading Revelation, because some of the imagery isn't always easy to understand and all the ideas in it are not all, the cookies aren't all on the bottom shelf with this book, is that this is written by a pastor to his people. In fact, it's, many believe it's the same uh, Apostle John that is uh, the author of the Gospel John, which you guys are actually processing through here on Sundays. And what you see in, the, in chapters two and three, right near the beginning of this book, is a letter that is written to seven different churches uh, located on kind of the Mediterranean sort of uh, track here. And these seven churches are not just seven unique congregations, though they are, but they're also representative of the spiritual climate that can exist in all of God's church. That across the spectrum of all of God's people, we're all doing good, we're all doing bad, and we all have some combination of the two. And we uniquely express challenges and needs and strengths and all different things. And so these letters are, are written to these variety of churches, uh, praising them for the things that are doing well and challenging them things that they're not. And what I want to read about is the church at Laodicea. So church at Laodicea. So this is going to be in chapter three, and this is going to be the last portion of it before we jump into chapter four. And uh, we'll go from there. So to the angel of the church in Laodicea, here's what they're to write. These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need anything, 
But you don't realize that you are wretched, you are pitiful, poor, blind, also naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Now, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am in verse 20. I stand at the door and knock. And if if anyone hears my voice and opens that door, well, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So here's the church in Laodicea. Now, there's a couple things happening for this church. One of the big things that you notice in the beginning of this letter is the language of being cold nor hot. In Laodicea, one of the unique geographic places uh, or, or um, the geographic facets of where this church is located, is just outside the, uh, side the town on either side of it was a hot spring and a cold spring. Essentially, Laodicea had a reputation as almost a very therapeutic place. Many people would go there, especially if they had severe ailments or severe pain or chronic pain or something like that, because outside of town, you'd be able to get like a sort of a hot tub sort of spa experience and a cold tub sort of spa experience. And both have therapeutic value to bring refreshing to people based on what conditions that they might be going through. Um, now, I don't know how much you might be into the whole cold tub experience. Um, when I went to Oregon State University, I played football there, and one of the torturous things that they required uh, of us uh, when we were uh, in practice and in the middle of summer and so forth is every single day, twice a day, we had to sit in a cold tub of about 50 degree water for about 10 minutes at a pop. And though we hated it, it was absolutely refreshing to our muscles. It was amazing how, though you were exerting yourself at the high level, uh, that it was able to actually rejuvenate you significantly. But sitting in 50 degree water for 10 minutes ain't easy. It is not easy. And it takes a lot of mental toughness to get there if you can actually get there. Um, Now, when uh, my wife and I, just a few years ago, we actually went on a little couples retreat. We're up in Canada. And we went to a Scandinavian spa. I don't know if you've ever heard of a Scandinavian spa before, if you've ever wondered what that's all about. Um, but essentially what they have are hot tubs, cold tubs, and rest areas. They have like a garden sort of scene set up. It's very, very uh, peaceful. And they have a variety of different hot tubs and warm places where you can soak. And then they have a bunch of different cold tubs in which you can go and soak, and then you rest. And so the rhythm of a Scandinavian spa uh, is that you go the hot tub, cold tub, and then rest. Hot, cold, and then rest, hot, cold, and rest. And there's signs outside of each of them for how long, essentially, they recommend that you do this. And then you just keep repeating this over and over again. It's actually one of the more relaxing things that I've ever done in my life. It was actually quite incredible. Uh, the hot tub you're supposed to be in for about 15 minutes. And then the cold tub, you're supposed to jump into that. And then from there, go spend another 20 minutes or so just in a restful place in silence and just kind of reflecting. Now, I came from the experience of spending about 10 minutes in a cold tub in my athletic days. And so when I uh, went to the cold tub after being in a hot tub, um, I was committed. And I was sitting in that cold tub, like with teeth clenched, like (laughs) chattering, just fighting it through. And there was person after person that was filtering into the tub, and it was a very heavy kind of touristy area, so lots of, uh, lots of East Asian people, non-English speakers coming into the tub, and each of them are giving me a very unique look, a very unique look that I can't quite interpret in the cross-cultural sort of lens, but I'm assuming what they mean to say is, oh man, isn't this cold? Aren't we sharing a moment? And I'm like, oh yes, in my head, this is very cold. We are definitely sharing a moment. <laughs> Until about four minutes into the cold tub, a friend of mine <laughs> comes walking out from the restful place, and says, champion, the sign says 10 seconds, not 10 minutes. What are you still doing in there? 
uh, to which now I know all the strange looks were, why are, are you enjoying this? Why are you still in here? The truth is that there is an amazing thing that happens in the warmth and in the cool, but whenever that water in Laodicea was piped into the city itself, it lost its hotness and it lost its coolness and it all kind of evened out at lukewarm. And there it's good for nothing. And so the rebuke to this church is you're, you're kind of good for nothing. I would rather you be like hot and soothing or cold and refreshing, but you're offering neither. Some people kind of look at this on the surface and say like, okay, is Jesus saying he'd rather me be like super hot and on fire for him or super cold and callous to him? He just doesn't want me in the mushy middle? It's like, no, 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 no. Mushy middle is preferable to like cold and callous, believe it or not. The idea is like you're just, you have an idea of what it could look like to be a, to be a benefit or a health to the people around you and you're just none of it. You're just not any of it. And here's what the real problem was. He says, what you think about yourself and how you actually are spiritually are very, very different. You think you're wealthy. You think you're comfortable. You think you have everything that you need. And you're not. And then the language comes as you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, and also naked. Now, if the final, like, if there's ever a moment where that piece of information is something that I am not aware of, but you are aware of, I would love to know it. If at any moment I am actually naked and unaware, that would be helpful information for me to know. Like, we are not friends, <laughs> you know what I mean? If I got the piece of like parsley in my teeth and you don't say anything, like you're not a friend, that even more so. <laughs> like, if I'm... And the more and more that I've pondered this passage, it really sticks out to me as a very Oregonian passage. That I think to myself, why is it that people live here in Oregon? Now, there's some unique like, uh, discrepancies between maybe why someone would want to live in Corvallis, if they had the choice at least, compared to a city like Portland. But there's still a lot of overlap. I mean, you go to LA if you want to be seen, if you want to be known, if you want to be famous, if you want to enter the industry. Everyone down there drives a fancy car and tries to wear the nice clothes and tries to make sure their appearance on the outside looks as best as they possibly can, even representing themselves wealthier and more successful than they actually are. You go to New York if you want to really make it and be a success, you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, if, you want, like if, you can't, if you can make it in New York, they say you can make it anywhere, which is an interesting thought. That this is, the, this is the place on the planet. Like, I'm not sure if you could go to like rural Eastern Oregon like, and, and like those skills will directly, you know what I mean, line up, you know what I mean? If you can make it in New York, I'm not sure you can make it in Hermiston. I'm not sure that that's a thing, you know? I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's true. But what do you do here in Oregon? I think you come to Oregon to be relatively comfortable. Now, for, for all of the kind of pagan, kind of anti-theist, agnostic-y sort of revelry that we have here, the one thing that we do have here is hedonism, and we've got great food and drugs. Not that I've tried, <laughs> but we just, we do pleasure so well here. And if you can endure the rain, it's just green, beautiful green, even in the midst of summer. And for those two weeks that you think you might actually need air conditioning, you don't, you'll survive. <clears throat> we are among the people that embrace a spiritual vibe as, yeah, we're, we're fine. We're fine. And to these people, God says, oh, no, 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 you're not fine. You can be comfortable on the outside, but there's a deeper purpose of your life that's intended for, which is not comfort. 
And so here's what the invitation that God makes. God says, I stand at the door and I knock. And anyone that'll open that door, I'm gonna come in and dine with them and they're gonna come in and dine with me. Somehow there's gonna be a dwelling with God and God's dwelling with us and we're gonna share this intimate relationality with God and through that we're gonna have an experience of God that goes beyond just our physical or material comforts. That God desires to relate to us in a deep way but somehow that's connected into the reality that we actually need him. We need him. We think we're fine. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. But I stand at the door and knock. And if you would open that door, then, then, not only would you simultaneously realize how naked and wretched and pitiful and poor you actually are, but you would actually find yourself clothed and you would find your deepest needs being satisfied and met in ways that you could never have anticipated. Now, here's what happens in chapter four. In chapter four, we're left with this little uh, cliffhanger of God standing at the door of the church of Laodicea and knocking. But then in chapter four, we pick up, and here's what it says. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door, standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. And at once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. So what just happened? We start off with the vision that God is somehow standing at this door of this church and knocking, inviting them to open it up and allow God to come in and meet with them in a deeper way as they would meet with him simultaneously. And then we get a vision of an open door in heaven. And essentially what we're being given a vision of is what would happen if the church would open the door. What happens if the church actually hears the knocking of Jesus and decides to open up the door to their heart, to their life, and to their community, to the presence and reality of God? And here's what John's gonna get, is here's what happens when the church opens up that door, when they refuse to just settle for what is just a common cultural piece of comfort and choose to actually lean in to receive from God what they actually most desperately need, which is not a new recommendation on the best food truck on the block, but is an encounter with the living God and his presence. And once we step into chapter four, here's what happens for John. He sees that there is a throne room with a person sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow uh, that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. We just sang about this. Almost like there's a Holy Spirit at work at times in the song choices, you know what I mean? In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing and these are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, third had a face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So here is what John is brought into. What's on the other side of God's invitation as he knocks at the door of the church? I believe it's an invitation to come into worship 
at the throne in the overlap. To worship at the throne in the overlap. And that's what I want to unpack with you guys for the remainder of our time here. The first piece is just simply worship. That what happens when John steps through this door is he encounters a reality that's beyond his five senses. This is in the biblical language is what's known as an apocalypse, which is why the book of Revelation can also be translated as the apocalypse of John. The apocalypse isn't the ending of the world. It's the revealing or unveiling of the way things really are. An apocalypse is being able to see something from God's vantage point or being able to see something for what it really is. And so what John is seeing is a vision of God's throne room that is every bit as real as the world in which we're in, but that he's not able to access simply by his own human faculties without the help of the Spirit. And what he's seeing in this moment is something that is so captivating, it is capturing not only his attention fully and completely, it's actually drawing him into what's happening in this space day and night in the language of this chapter, that there is worship going on. The 24 elders that are surrounded here, there's debate about what they exactly are, but essentially my take is that they are uh, spiritual divine beings that are sitting in worship of God. Um, There's the four living creatures with the face like a lion and an ox and the face like a man and an eagle representing the best of all of creation. Uh, The fierceness, the strength, the wisdom of man and the swiftness of an eagle. It's like all the best of the created world that God has made is all rallied in the unseen realm and representative of the seen realm and it's all there declaring worship to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, essentially, this apparently is a, is a worship moment that doesn't cease, which for you and I doesn't make sense of our world because for us, it feels like at times we're going in and out of worship or that we came here at 10 a.m. to gather for worship. But the truth of what Revelation paints is that there is a 24-7 worship meeting cooking in the heavenly realms that you and I at 10 a.m. joined into but did not initiate nor begin. And what happens when Jesus stands at the door to knock is he invites us into that place where we worship and when our attentions are so captured by something so much greater that it almost puts in perspective all the things that you use to comfort your life with as small and far less meaningful. And praise God for a good cup of ramen and praise God for an amazing sandwich at Lardo. However, there is something far more grand and glorious in the universe and that is being what's represented by the one who is seated on this throne. And think of the language that's being used here in this moment. It's not typical of our very poetic sort of language that we might want to use to espouse what worship sounds like. It's just simply holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. Holy is a word that just simply means other than. It can mean set apart or unique. The refrain that happens oftentimes among the biblical authors is, who is like God? Who is like him? That's the idea of holiness. That there's no other category or bucket that you can put him into to kind of give it an understanding of exactly what he's like. 
In the same way, you could describe a restaurant. It's like, well, what kind of food is it? You say, well, it's kind of like a fusion of Mexican and kind of like a fusion of like traditional American. And they, you, can, you can create language to create a category of what someone's like. What kind of a person are they? Well, well they're kind of an outgoing sort of person and they have kind of an extroverted personality, but they're, they're, they're a little bit bubbly. You're using language about things that you've seen elsewhere, categories that you already have inside your head to try to give meaning to something you don't yet know. But for God, there is no proper category that you can understand or conceive of that he fits into. He is a one of one. He's holy. It's what happens when you see him fully in his presence and you don't have vocabulary that is actually able to work because nothing that you can say or to fill in the blank of God is like blank. It fails. Yeah, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. Every reference point I can use with my experience and my language falls short of even comes close to describing whatever type of a being he is. And so we just say holy, like other. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty, the timeless one, the ancient of days, who was and is and is to come. He's not immortal, he's eternal, meaning he didn't have a beginning and there will never be an end. And his presence now is the same as it was and will ever be. He's, there's nothing else that we have in the universe that compares to him. And every time we make the brazen attempt to say God is like, we've already tread on ground that is semi-helpful and mostly wrong. But it's human language, and it's the best we got. But once you get into the raw, unfiltered presence of God, the best you have is just to lay down your being and declare about him something that is beyond any other category you would ever associate him with. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote about this experience of worship. He wrote a little book on the book of Revelation called Reversed Thunder. Uh, if you don't know his name, he was, a, he was a pastor and an author. He passed away a few years back. Um, he ended up writing the Message Bible, if any of you are familiar with that. But uh, I wanna show you this quote that he has about this moment of worship and what it looks like. He says, we worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life, he says, of spasms and jerks. At the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy. As we are in turn, Alarmed by specters, and here's my favorite part, soothed by placebos. Eugene Peterson for the win. Maybe someday we'll be able to communicate like he does. And what's he saying? He's saying what happens in worship? What happens when we answer the knocking door? We come to a place where we're no longer driven out of reaction to all the things beckoning our attentions in this world, but we're now free to live in response to a being that matters more than anything else. Life on the other side of the closed door is a life that's emotionally described by anxiety. And what anxiety does by effect is it causes your automatic reactivity. 
Anxiety is the base kind of primal state of humanity that puts us in our lower brain, that causes us to respond to threats in one of either three ways. Fight, flight, or freeze. That's why so many of us have repeated patterns of behavior or speech or relational patterns of brokenness and so on and so forth that we could actually chart with laughable predictability. And even though we're frustrated by it, can't seem to do anything different about it. Because anxiety locks us into the spasms and jerks, almost the involuntary and uncontrollable reactions to every little impulse that comes in your life. Every whim of fear, every whim of anxiety, every whim of worry, every whim of like, this will make your life better, this will make your life happier, this will make you more attractive, surely this will make your life more important. And we respond to all of that through spasms and jerks, manipulated and only manipulating. Not able to live in the world as we freely receive the love of God and freely give it away, but as if we have to like be controlled somehow and manipulated to give what we have and somehow measure what we give in order to make sure we give it the minimal amount in order to maximize what we take out of others. And he says what worship does is it draws us out of this. And what happens in individuals or societies The more our external comforts rise, it just simply brings a greater exposure to our internal anxieties. You ever notice this? It's what happens when like, if you've ever gone through like a real tragedy in your life, maybe it's a a death of, of someone who's close to you. I watch it all the time in pastoral situations. When you go through a real um, difficult or even traumatic emotional moment, what's easy to do to get through that moment is just to focus on your external life. You go to work. You focus on all the little busy things you need to do. You clean your house. And rather than dealing with your internal life, you just focus on your external life. And if you get stuck there, you have this black hole happening on the inside of you where you're pretending everything's fine, but you've just become that meme online of like the dog sipping coffee while the whole room's on fire. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And it's not. And as culturally, we now exist as the most prosperous and wealthy and comfortable like, subsection of the human species that has ever existed, the more comfortable our external, external worlds have become, that just only unveils more clearly how in a mess our internal worlds are. And what happens as a result is we are constantly living between one of two extremes. Panic and lethargy. Or as Ted Lasso would say, the only two buttons that I never like to push are the panic button and the snooze button. (laughs) We live between this panic and this rush, and I'm always behind, and I'm never ahead, and I always needed to bore, and I always need to stay busy. And we use busy as a way of describing our lives as if it is admirable and noble. Or we get so overwhelmed by all the things that we know we actually have to do that we busy ourselves with the things we don't actually have to do, and then we live in this procrastinative state. I can speak on this well. I'm still in school trying to finish my doctorate, and yes, I know the procrastinating button well. I know the snooze button well. Surely this can wait another week. Surely that conversation I know this is a difficult conflict sort of moment I need to have with someone I care about. I know I need to speak truth to them. I know I need to have them speak truth to me. I know I need to forgive them. I know I need to ask for their forgiveness. But surely I can just do the dishes one more time. 
or binge the next thing on Netflix. Or check Amazon Prime just to scroll and see if there might be anything. And what worship does is it brings us out of the trivial, the blind view of life that's trying to ignore reality, and it brings us into ultimate reality. Where no longer do I pay attention to things that don't matter, and now I'm consumed with all the things that do. And I'm no longer driven by the winds of anxiety, but I live what the language calls the freedom of the spirit. Freedom of the spirit, which is to respond, not react, but to lovingly respond to what God is doing, not anxiously react to what's happening in my life. My friends, this is freedom. This is freedom. And it takes looking at the Holy One on the throne to get there. We worship at this throne. And let's say a little bit more about this throne. Because the first thing you come in contact with when you get into the space, even if it's by faith, and you don't see what John got to saw in his apocalypse, but you come into that space by faith, which is what John is inviting us to do, is the first thing the throne reminds you is that there is someone sitting on it, and, wait for it, you're not the one. You're not. You're not on the throne. You act like you're on the throne. You pretend to be on the throne. You create a little throne for yourself at times to sit on, but you're not on the actual throne of the universe. And uh, as heretical, controversial, and uh, hmm, then there's fighting words in a place like the Northwest. But here's also the good news. It means that our president isn't, or the ones before him weren't. And the future ones will not be. It means that our economic system won't be. It means that your parents aren't. It means that your enemies aren't. It means that the people that you think that are just ruining everything, that they're not. Everything that you think that has sway and control over you or this world is not on the throne, but God actually is. And when you come into that space, you realize all the mess that might be happening in the world, I don't have perfect language for or reasons for why everything happens the way that it happens. But what I do know is there is a mighty one, an eternal one who is holy, who is on the throne. And I don't have to understand the way all of life goes to trust that the one ruling from heaven knows what he's doing. So therefore I come, and as I worship, and as I am submitting myself, realizing how low on the totem pole I am, that my defiance is like an ant shaking his fist. It's cute, but it's not much more than that. It brings me into the peace of knowing I don't have to be the ruler of my own life or anyone else's. Someone else is filling that job description perfectly. And then finally, it's in the overlap. Worshiping at the throne in the overlap. That what John was unable to see without the aid of the Spirit was that the space where he was was a space where heaven and earth were completely overlapped with one another. The space where God dwells and we dwell have actually intersected that through the death of Jesus, we have a world that's being reconciled back together. Not just our lives individualistically, relationally being reconciled to God, but God is reconciling heaven and earth so that they may be one cohesive space again. 
And what happens when we worship in the overlap is we come into a space where we're here, but we're also somewhere else. I, I became a Christian when I was 20 years old. I was a sophomore in college, and I had no church background experience. My family was agnostic at best on the atheist sort of leaning a bit spectrum. Um, and so all I ever heard about was some like jabs uh, and negative beef against anything that had the veiled form of religion growing up. And when I became a Christian, I knew that uh, I had met Jesus on the throne, and I knew he rightly deserved to have the, like, the total rulership of my life, and I gave my life to him. But then I started showing up at church, and things got tricky real quick. Jesus I was cool with, but you know, it's the other people, <laughs> the y'alls. <laughs> That's where things really get tough for me. And what I first noticed is that as I started showing up to church, uh, they would sing songs in the beginning of church. And like, where else do you go? Like, I'm not like, really into karaoke or anything like that. I don't even sing in the shower. So like, this wasn't really a thing I was comfortable with to begin with. But what I noticed was we weren't just singing karaoke. I started watching people who were singing in the space next to me, but didn't seem like they were in the space next to me. I mean, their hands were lifted, their eyes were closed, there was even emotions. I saw them weeping at times, sometimes falling on their knees, and it just looked like, man, they were here, but they were really not here. They were somewhere else. And I didn't know what to make of it, because I'm reading the same words you're reading on the screen, and for some reason, you're having a moment with it. And I wasn't. And then, several months later, I went out to a conference. It was in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was specifically for student-athletes. It was about two-thirds African-American. The worship was being led by a guy named Kevin Singleton and Israel Houghton. Remember those guys, Simon? And uh, let's just say it was lively. And it was the first time sitting in a room in worship where as I was sitting as a good Northwesterner, you know, hands in pockets, or even better, like hand on latte, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> where I was the only person in the room who did not have his hands lifted, who wasn't having an emotional experience, who seemed to only be in that. Everyone else seemed to be somewhere else, and I was seen like I felt like I was just kind of like left behind. And I said, well, I, in Oregon, don't stick out like a sore thumb if I'm just chill, but here, I do. So I said, when in Rome, and as I started to lift my hands, and close my eyes, and allow my heart to express affection to my God. His presence rushed in, and all of a sudden, I realized what was happening. I judged from the outside how weird everyone else looked, but then from the inside, I experienced it, and it's exactly what happened. You're brought into the overlap, and though you're standing in the same physical space, you are not in the same physical space, and you're right in this overlap zone where God's presence envelops you, and I can tell you that my life was changed over those next two days when I was there in Nashville, and I can't tell you one word that was preached in any of the sermons. I can't even tell you the songs that we actually sung, but I can tell you about what the Spirit of God did in my life as I worshiped in the overlap. And I got so filled with the life of God in that space that I craved it and hungered for it. That it didn't even matter when I came back to Corvallis and was among all the like, quiet white people again. Like it didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter what everyone else thought of me. It didn't matter how I looked or appeared on the outside. I just wanted to meet with my father. Worshiping at the throne in the overlap, and it changes you. And can I just say, when I was coming up here this morning and even praying about what it was that the Lord wanted to say, I know we've all been through a time in the last couple of years 
There's been many times where I've questioned like my occupation choices. <laughs> I call them Mondays. <laughs> like I just, you know, like why again? Why do I have to be at the center taking shots from every angle and direction, trying to hold something together that no one else seems interested in holding together at times? Why? And then I realized that what I need more than convenience, more than finance, more than circumstance, even more than other people, is I need worship. I need it, and so do you. I'm doing my doctorate degree on the fusion of psychology and theology. I believe in counseling, have been to counseling, promote counseling, and I'm, I'm like not the worst counselor that I've ever known. I love it, believe in it. But here's what I also know. The best therapists and therapist mentors that I've ever had will tell me this, there's only so far therapy can take you. It's helpful. But what our soul truly lacks is the presence of God. Not more advice, not more psychology, not more emotional insight. Those things all have their place. But what my soul needs and craves is to worship at the throne in the overlap. And I can't quantify what exactly happens in me when I come to that space, but I change. I change. And sometimes, sometimes I get so fixated on my external world and all the circumstances, whether they're going well or not well, comfortable or uncomfortable, and realize that that matters so much less when I'm standing in the presence of the Holy One who was and who is and who is to come. And sometimes, I also get lost in my feelings. I get lost in all the feels. And I get lost in depression or anxiety or in worry and get, and I like try to dive into the deep dark abyss of like sorting out like how I feel and why I feel the way I feel and I, like at, at every given moment or minute and like my goodness, that is like a knot of spaghetti like in my stomach. I full yet, I can't fully figure that one out. And yet when I come before the throne in the overlap, I just bring the messy knot of my emotions to it. And there's something that's touched in God's presence. That just sitting alone in my room in the dark, reading Job for the hundredth time in the week, doesn't. You're feeling this. When Jesus, when Jesus was on the earth, his invitation he always made was come to me. Follow me. Come to me. Follow me. I think there's a reason for it. I know I need other people. God said it was not good that I would be alone. I know I need godly friendships, and I am the richest man in the world for the friendships that I have, Pastor Simon and others included. I've got the best wife that has ever been supplied to any human being. I am filthy rich relationally. But there are things my wife cannot do for me. There are things my friends cannot do for me. There's things that this church will not do for you. But coming to worship at the throne in the overlap, it will. And if there's nothing else you've picked up over the last two years, is that coming together to enter into this space is vital. It's vital. If you think you can follow Jesus without it, my friends, then you are pitiful, 
wretched, naked, and poor. And the gracious God is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And if you'll open that door, we just got a vision for what'll happen. You'll be brought into worship at the throne in the overlap. So as we close up this morning, can I ask you to, can I ask you to speak? It's so hard for me to uh, read Revelation 4 without entering into Revelation 4. And Simon, you can come on up as well. Because this is a picture of what is happening in the unseen realm and what you and I are invited to participate in at the throne and in the overlap. And we get a couple little worship ditties here. And uh, I thought we would just enter into this chorus that is happening and cooking uh, before God's throne in the unseen place, and we would just join it here at Grace City, Portland. And so, here's, here's the deal. Uh, I, I'm not an amazing musical leader here. Um, so we're gonna go for tone, or excuse me, we're gonna go for volume and not tone. Tone is not important. Like, I, no Simon Cowell's in the room gonna question your pitchiness, that's not happening. None of that's happening. <clears throat> we're just, I'm, I'm also gonna give you permission to use your outside voices. I'll read a line, and then y'all can repeat it. You ready for this? Let's join into this worship. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Beautiful. Is the Lord God Almighty. Is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and who is and is to come. Who was and is and is to come. In verse 11, you are worthy. You are worthy. Our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. And to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory. And power, and power. Forever, forever and ever, and ever. And ever. Amen. 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 Father, we thank you for the beautiful privilege that your son has purchased, that we might come right into your throne room. And by faith now, God, we know that's exactly as your people where we are. And so we bring you the worship that you deserve, and we trust that even our souls will be made right as we do. God, we thank you that you can make us well and rich and alive. And we give you all the praise and the honor for it in the name of Jesus.